Good morning, Grace. I'd like to begin by praying. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just sang, let earth in chorus join the song, uh, the throng to shout that great triumphant song, Lord. So the idea is in heaven right now, Jesus, you are being praised because you are the lamb who was slain. You are the one who rose from the grave. You are the one who is ascended and reigning and coming again. And you are the conquering king. And Lord, from where we sit here on earth, we feel the tension that that is coming, but not full for us yet. So Lord, we need your help this morning to be people who join that chorus and sing triumphantly, even as we see evidence all around us that the end is not here yet. So Lord, I pray this verse for us from Colossians 3, that you would use this word from 1 Corinthians, um, through it you would make the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to which we were called in one body, and that you would make us thankful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Grace. Um, yesterday, it was my profound honor to attend uh, and even play a small part in the memorial service for Phil Davis, our brother, who is right now in the presence of Christ. And I want to start by just thanking some of you family who even on a day of your grief ministered to me and to us powerfully. PJ, Katie, Eric, Alan, Junior, John, Josh, Bowen, and, and the rest who shared, thank you so much for encouraging us and lifting our eyes to our great hope um, as we remembered a man uh, whose faith was absolutely worthy of our imitation. I was so admonished and encouraged throughout the entire service. Many things struck me. I could use all my sermon time right now just to unpack the things that I went home chewing on and reflecting on in light of Phil's life. But I want to hit three real quick. You know, by the way, Keeping your face mask in your pocket also is a great double for when you need to do one of these. So three things real quick. Number one, I was struck by the delight that Phil obviously had in being a father and grandfather and the delight that Phil had in all of his children and grandchildren. It was so clear in every photo in the slideshow and in the reflections of his family. And it reminded me in the service and reflected to me that's the way our Heavenly Father feels about being our Father. He delights to be our Father. And He delights in us as His children. And Phil reflected that to his family and to our church. I was reminded of Zephaniah 3.17, this picture of the Lord our God in our midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I saw in the faces of, of Phil's family yesterday the kind of security of resting in their dad's love that ought to characterize the way we feel secure and we rest in the love of our Heavenly Father. Second thing I took away, I was admonished by Phil's example that the calling of every husband and dad is to be a disciple maker in the family. 
his memorial service video ought to be required viewing for every man, every husband and dad, every future husband and dad at Grace. It was so evident by each of the reflections, um, uh, especially in their sons and son-in-laws who stood up to minister the gospel to us and to shepherd their family in this moment of grief. PJ and Eric and Alan and John and Junior It was so evident that you each understood that the day that the Lord took your dad home, that an increased mantle of responsibility was added to your shoulders, that he had prepared you to quickly take on uh, and joyfully take on. It was beautiful yesterday. And third thing, I was reminded that memorial services are not just for looking back, but for looking forward. They're not just to remember and honor the past life um, lived, but it's to ask us then, how then will you live in light of this life that we're remembering, whose life pointed to Christ in such a clear way? And I want to thank you, Eric Davis, in particular, the way that you charged each grandchild, each sibling, and your mom from the scriptures to then say, how then will we live in light of this wonderful life that we were blessed to have known was moving. In fact, the verse that you chose for Katie uh, is the closing verse of this morning's passage. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So our passage couldn't be more appropriate and more timely this morning. Grace, if there's ever a time that we need hope like these verses hold out to us, it's when we are confronted with death. Memorial services force us to consider our own mortality. Death resurfaces a question, what is life all about? And more specifically, more uncomfortably maybe for you, asks, makes you ask, well, what has my life been about? What is my life currently about? And death brings grief. Something deep within us tells us that death isn't natural. It's not the circle of life. The Lion King was lying to us. Years ago, I read a book by uh, Professor Michael Horton, and in it, he wrote about a mural that hung in the convalescent home where his father died. And in the hallway, there was these pictures of people from every stage of life, uh, babies and children and young adults, all the way to older adults. And over it, it said, the setting of the sun is as beautiful as it's rising. And he wrote... However well-intentioned that was, how offensive that must have seemed to so many who were suffering at the end of their life. I think he's right. I've been to many hospitals to visit new parents holding their babies, and I've sat in a convalescent home just like that with my own grandfather for days, watching him struggle with kind of final breaths and finally die, and that is not as beautiful as the first. Even Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, wept at the grave of his dear friend Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to call him forth from the grave to walk again. It's right for us to grieve death. But, as was clear again in the memorial service for Phil yesterday, all grieving isn't the same. To put it in musical terms, as a musician, grief comes in two keys. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, Christians don't grieve as others do who have no hope. 
So that tells us there's more than one sort of grief. Minor keys in music sound dark and sad and hopeless. And major keys can lift our spirit. They sound joyful and hopeful and triumphant. And the gospel, because Christ died for sin and he rose again and he promised he will come again and make all things right, like all these songs that we just sang, Christian, we can grieve in a major key. That doesn't mean just a smiley, happy, everything's okay, without tears sort of grief, but in a major key nevertheless, tears that are undergirded with a confidence that death does not get the last word. Jesus put an exit door in the grave. So Christian, I want to say to you this morning, even as we get into the passage, your resurrection hope means you don't have to grieve without hope and you don't have to fear death. God does not want you to fear death. That's why we have this chapter in the Bible among many others. This should cause thanksgiving to burst out of us, which is what it does for Paul right near the end. In verse 57, he says at the end of this, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read it. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 50 through 58. I want to read them and reflect then on three reasons that thanks be to God for our resurrection hope. Let's read. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal puts on, must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of sin, death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's at least three solid reasons for us to give thanks to God this morning for our resurrection hope. Let's dive in. Number one, we will all be changed. Look at verse 50. Verse 50 raises a problem that needs to be solved. Verse 50 says, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So here's the problem. In Christ, we've been promised an inheritance, and we are heirs of a kingdom that has no end. Verse, uh, 1 Peter 1.4 says, we've been born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that's great, except even though we're born again, we are still perishable, defiled, and fading. 
These are incongruous. We're still perishable. We still have natural bodies that still decay and die. I can't hear the word perishable without thinking of food in our fridge, in our pantry. Every week, at some point, there's things that we have to throw out because we just didn't eat it quickly enough. Avocados go brown, and our bread that we baked goes moldy within a week, and the milk goes sour, and coffee loses its flavor. Just a quick story. (laughs) Sorry, Mom. A few years ago, uh, we were out in Colorado visiting my mom at her house, and we get up the first morning, and she, uh, I'm going to make coffee, and she goes to the cupboard, and she pulls out this bag of pre-ground coffee, gourmet coffee, and she said, here, make this. And I looked at the bag, and I can't remember exactly, but I think it was at least five years old. Ground coffee, five years old, and I just realized this isn't going to taste like anything. And so I was about to throw it away, and my, my mom says, oh, no, don't throw that out. I'll just save it for someone who's not as picky as you. <laughs> she kept, I'm so sorry, Mom, I love you. But that coffee had long since ceased to be coffee. Anything in it that made it anything worth drinking had long since left the building. It was perishable. And we're perishable. We're also still defiled. That doesn't mean we're not forgiven. And we right now, God counts us righteous with the righteousness of Christ. But nevertheless, like in Mark 7, Jesus said this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him or her. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so in that way, even though we're born again, Christian, even though I'm born again, that doesn't mean that my sin nature has been eradicated. Still, sadly, day to day, I need to confess that these evil things will flow out of my mind and my heart and in my life. We are not undefiled yet. And we're fading. We're we're diminishing in strength and vitality in our natural bodies. I was just thinking that one of the saddest things about our American dream of retirement is that it tells us all our lives, work hard now to play hard then. And we've all seen, sadly, how often those who get to the then are not able to play as hard or as long as they'd hoped because we're fading Our present bodies simply are incapable of enjoying the type of inheritance that we've been promised. It's like software that's so old and defunct, it just doesn't operate with the new operating system. It's just incompatible. We need something completely new, and that's what we're promised here. But this feeling right now should make us as Christians feel a groaning. That's what Romans 8, 23 and 24 says. It says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So those of us who have been born again to a living hope. Here's our experience now. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. We feel the sense that we've been promised something that right now we can't lay hold of and it's in this hope we were saved. I've had an Andrew Peterson song stuck in my head all week, which is no surprise. He's my favorite. But... Uh, It's my favorite song of his. It's called, Don't You Want to Thank Someone for This? And the first verse has been echoing in my head all week. It starts like this. Can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. It's something that you've always known, but you don't know why. We feel this. Aren't you just tired of funerals? 
Aren't you tired of graveyards and tired of tears and loss and birthdays and holidays and, and events that pass that remind us of separation, of loss? Aren't you sick of it? Jesus was. You know, at the tomb of Lazarus, it says when he got there and he saw the scene, before it says that he wept, it says this. It says he was deeply moved in his spirit. It's a word that literally means outraged. He was just indignant. It ticked him off. He'd had it. Jesus got to the tomb and, and it was a sense of something is not right here. And his anger displays for us how much Jesus longs to get rid of rotten corruption and mortality, and he will. Here's the solution, verses 51 to 53. We shall all be changed. Behold, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's a mind blower, again, for me in a fresh way this week. What that saying is many will experience that future resurrection as a resurrection from the grave. Phil Davis's body will rise from the grave and, and be alive again with Christ. But for others who are alive when Jesus returns, it will be straight from natural body to spiritual body. It struck me again this week in, in a fresh way. There are some who will never experience heaven. They will never know a disembodied state away from the body, present with the Lord, waiting that resurrection day. Some will just step from this life to the immortal life. It's amazing. But nevertheless, he says, we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will all be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Later in that same Andrew Peterson song, there's another verse, and he tries to capture this sense of imagination. What would it be like to live in a kingdom that has no end once God has put on us the imperishable and the immortal? And this is how he tries to capture it. Another verse says, when the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again. I love that. We will be ancient in our youth. That was the point Alan was making last week about our, our resurrection bodies. We won't simply be transported back to how Adam and Eve once were before they sinned, where they were able not to die. We will be made by God permanently unable to die. We will be made invincible and will be made fully and finally clean and undefiled. I don't know what I look forward to more. It's a tie, I guess. <laughs> Betsy and I, my wife, we met working at a camp, Forest Home Christian Conference Center, up in Forest Falls. Uh, for two summers, we worked with high school students uh, for summer camp. And every week for two summers, one of our rec days was called the Mud Pit. And just down the hill from our high school area of camp was this big dirt square field where they had these fire hoses. And every week they would just soak the whole thing until it was like past your ankles deep in thick, gushy mud. In fact, one year we played, I don't know why, we played this game, this relay race that involved uh, dead fish. And as the summer went on, the mud just got stinkier and stinkier. It was nasty but, and fun. 
But anyway, I had this memory this week thinking about being clean, that every week we had the same experience. We'd finish and we'd just be covered. There wasn't a square inch on our bodies that weren't coated with thick, drying, stinky mud. And we'd all march up the hill to the lake, around the backside of the lake where the Billy Graham cross is, if you've been to Forest Home. And we'd all get into the lake first just to get all the heavy stuff off. And we'd all get in up to our necks and you'd see these brown clouds just started to float away from us. It was gross. And we'd get all the big stuff off and we'd step out and then we'd slog around the lake back to our cabins and we'd take all the mud pit clothes and we'd leave them in a pile on the patio where it would dry in the sun until next week when we had to put them back on again. But then we'd go in and we'd get hot showers and soap and shampoo and scrub and then put fresh, clean clothes on and we'd all, our staff would kind of meet out on the balcony and walk up to lunch. And I have this visceral memory every week of that moment. We'd walk out into the sunshine and walk back up the hill to the dining hall for lunch and it was like every pore on your body was tingling. I've never been to a day spa, but I imagine that was like a giant mud scrub and just felt the cleanest I've ever felt. I thought of that because there's a day coming, Paul is saying, when our perishable, sin-stained bodies and hearts are going to be made once for all clean, not just able not to sin, but unable and unwilling to sin forever. We've never known that feeling. Can you imagine what that's going to feel like? for a heart that's totally undivided in devotion to Christ. As my dear brother Chris Mitchell, who's also with Jesus right now, waiting for his resurrection body, frequently said, it's going to be a day when I will be safe, not from harm, but I will no longer be a threat or harm to anyone else. We will fully bear the image of the man of heaven. We will be fully conformed to the image of God's Son. Our lowly bodies will be made like his glorious body and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Can't you wait for that? We'll all be changed. Thanks be to God. Second reason, thanks be to God, is this. Death will be swallowed up in victory. That's a great sentence in the Bible. Death will be swallowed up. It's such a great word because death is the great swallower, isn't it? The swallower is going to become the swallowed. I did something this week. Uh, I did a Google search that is not the, the most uh, happy, uh, encouraging Google search. I was searching worldwide death counts by year. And I found a website that had stats for the year 2015, just one year. Just for some perspective again, when we think of death being swallowed up, what an amazing thing is that going to be? Listen, in 2015, the estimated worldwide death count was roughly 56.66 million people died on planet Earth in 2015. That's too big of a number for me to wrap my head around. So how about this? That's 155,233 people dying every day of 2015. That's 6,468 deaths every hour, 108 deaths every minute, almost two deaths every second, and that was just 2015. Death has been swallowing up life like the hands, the second hand ticking on a clock from the beginning. Gone, 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 gone. It's relentless. And death, Paul says here, has a sting, a powerful sting. 
And he says the sting of death is sin. Here's the thing. Death, his, its greatest sting is not its ability to separate my soul from its body. That is a sting. And it's not even death's ability to separate us from those that we love. That's also a sting. But the greatest sting of death is sin. It's its ability to separate you from God, body and soul, for eternity. Our sin is a declaration that we are enemies of God. We've made ourselves enemies of God. And because of our sin, we've incurred his righteous, just wrath. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says that what we deserve is the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. That's the sting of death. Because of sin, death is able to send you into an eternal godless future. That's why death, the sting of sin is death. And notice then what he says. What gives death sting, its poison, is the law. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin, the power of the sting, is the law, which is not what we think. We can tend to think, if I just know God's laws better, and I just try harder to keep them as best I can, surely in the end it'll all work out, and, and my good will outweigh my bad, and the law will lead me to, to, into favor with God. And Paul says, no. The power of sin is actually the law. Romans 7, 8 says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Which doesn't mean we would have never sinned if God had not revealed his law to us. But it means that the law intensifies our sinful desire that we're born with to exalt ourselves over God and overstep his good boundaries. So our sin nature sees God's boundaries and God's saying, walk in these ways. These are the paths of life. And don't walk in these ways. These are the paths of death. And the law just inflames our sin nature to say, oh yeah, I'll do what I like. Paul says in Romans 5.20, law came in to increase the trespass. So what's the solution? Well, it's Jesus. He removed death's sting. This, this deadly chain that the sting of sin, death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Jesus undid the whole deadly chain when he came to earth. Became a man like us in every way yet without sin. Why did he do that? Well, first, to obey the Lord and to please God with every step, every day, every breath of his life to perfectly fulfill the righteous requirement of the law that we've all utterly failed to uphold. And then he died to pay the penalty that our sin deserves for violating God's law in the first place. That's what Romans 8, 3 and 4 says. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in our place as our representative, in other words, and for sin, God was able to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, even though we didn't fulfill it. Jesus did. One commentator I read this week said, its venom has been absorbed by Christ and drained of its potency, which made me think of honeybees, of course. Uh, a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, um, I was with a group of junior high boys here from Grace, and we were geocaching. If you don't know what that is, 
you take your GPS and it's like treasure hunts. People will hide and you find them with the coordinates. Anyway, we found this one up on the hill, I'm pointing over there, toward Beach Boulevard and Rosecrans, those Fullerton Hills up above there where you see the water tower. It was right up by there. And we had hiked up there and we finally zoomed in on the location and it was this pile of tumbleweed and bushes and we realized that there was this fake plastic boulder someone had placed up there to hide this geocache. And so we all gathered around this thing and I grabbed one of the edges of it and I turned it upside down and there was the cache along with a massive hive of bees that had formed in the hollow of this rock. I mean, serious. It was like cartoons when I was a kid. Remember cartoons when the bee swarm would turn into like a giant shape? like an exclamation point or the word yikes or something. It was just like this huge cloud and we just panicked and sprinted away and they chased us for like a hundred yards just stinging us and stinging us and we finally got far enough away that all the bees left us and we're like sweating and we're all ripping off our shirts and I, I got stung like at least a dozen times and I pull my shirt off and in the back of my shirt were another half dozen stingers stuck in my shirt that just hadn't made their way through to my skin. But no bees, because as you know, honeybees sting once. They sting, and when they sting, that barbed stinger sticks in there and pulls out, and the bee dies, and, and the bee's not able to sting anymore. Unlike wasps and hornets, they can just sting, 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 sting. Why am I saying this? All right. For all of mankind, death has been like a wasp, just stinging again and again and again, full of power. But for Jesus at the cross, death was like a honeybee. On the cross, Jesus, uh, death plunged its sting deep into Jesus and he received the full venom of God's wrath into himself upon his shoulders for our sin. And he took it all. But because Jesus had no sin, death had no claim on him. Death's stinger was powerless to keep him dead. That's what Peter preached at Pentecost. He said, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And because it's not possible for Christ to be held by it, if we are in him, it's impossible for you to be held by death. His victory has become our victory. One day, Christians, in our eternal future, future, I can imagine a conversation like this. You turn to someone and say, do you remember death? They'll scratch their head and say, not really. His victory will become our victory. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. Here's the question, though. For maybe some of you, are you confident that you will share in Christ's victory? Do you know that his victory will be your victory? Because notice carefully, Paul says, God gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what you call Jesus? Is he your Lord, Jesus Christ? Before you can share in his victory, you have to admit your defeat. That's what the gospel says. You have to come to grips with the truth that your sin is what gives death its sting. Your guilt for ignoring God in the world that he made as a human being created in his image with his divine stamp, the Imago Dei, on you. You were created for a purpose, to know him and enjoy him and live with him and glorify him with your life. And to not do that is no small thing. The sting of death, God says, must fall on each one who has done that. And that's everybody. 
But what we're saying is the good news is that Jesus has already taken, it's already fallen on Jesus, and he's able to remove all your guilt if you'll humble yourself, admit defeat, and receive him as your Savior. I beg you to do that this morning. If you've never done that, you're sitting at home, maybe you tuned in on this this morning, you clicked the link that was suggested to you as you were browsing YouTube, and this morning God is saying to you, don't choose death. You can choose life forever and death swallowed up in victory for you. Thanks be to God. Third reason, thanks be to God, is verse 58. Our labor in the Lord isn't in vain. What labor is he talking about? What's the work of the Lord as Paul has talked about it in 1 Corinthians? I think it's this. Anything that builds up the church or helps the church to grow is the work of the Lord. I was thinking back to chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians where Paul talked a lot about the work of the Lord that the church is to be abounding in until Jesus returns. And he likened it to farming and building, helping things grow in a field and helping erect a, a huge structure on a foundation. And so this is the work that we're to be about, abounding in until the Lord returns. We plant and water, we share God's word, and we, and we teach God's word, and we proclaim the gospel to those who haven't heard it, and we pray for those, and, and, and we cultivate, and then God gives growth. Or like builders, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, he said, like a master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. One implication, Grace. Grace, we exist to build on the foundation that Paul and the apostles laid, which is Christ. That means for us in our generation, in our town, in our local community, we have a responsibility to keep building on that foundation. And not just the pastors of grace, not just the elder team of grace, but everyone. Because he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. God has purposes for you. He wants to use you in participation uh, with his kingdom work to help lead people into God's kingdom and help them to grow and be strengthened as citizens of his kingdom. I want to highlight three specific works that we're to be abounding in in this regard. We've seen them all in 1 Corinthians. The first one is sanctification. We are always to be abounding in growing toward into the likeness of Jesus, being conformed to his image. We call this series Seeing Everything Through a New Lens, which is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. And the gospel, once we receive it, ought to not leave us unchanged. But it begins to transform by the renewing of our minds, and it's worked out in the way that we love and think and live. And so although we will never perfectly bear the image of Christ until we're resurrected and given these imperishable bodies, that doesn't mean we just sit back complacently and don't bother ourselves with killing sin and don't bother ourselves with, with good works. No, we're encouraged to, 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 to grow. 2 Corinthians 3, in fact, Paul says that our lives now should look like inching forward by degrees toward Christ-likeness. He says it like this, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We get started on this now. In a couple of weeks, on June, July 19th, we're going to have our first 
uh, outdoor service here at Grace and then a live stream to follow. Um, and it's going to be our reflection service. And I would love for you to be thinking, what has God been helping you see through the book of 1 Corinthians and the new lens of the gospel? How has God been transforming you from one degree of glory to another? Has he? We'd love to hear some reflections and testimonies to this because we assume he has, even in the last three months when we haven't been seeing one another face to face. We're also to be always abounding in gospel proclamation. In chapter 9, Paul said his life, and then he wants us to imitate him in this. He says, I do all for the sake of the gospel. Every facet of his life is with a view toward how can this make the gospel heard better, remove obstacles from uh, hearing it or receiving it or believing it. We are to be about gospel proclamation, engaged in the work ourselves. It's just a simple question, Grace, that I need to ask myself. Where are you planting and sowing these days? Maybe you're a mom and it's, it's right in your home with your two kids. Maybe for some of you, it's with neighbors that you never knew until COVID hit and suddenly you're at home and you're just going outside and you're meeting neighbors you never met before and that's where God wants you to be planting and sowing. What patch of garden has God given you right now to tend? And are you being faithful with it? Prayerfully, boldly. May God help you be abounding in this work. And the third one, these aren't exhaustive, but the third work I think that we should always be abounding in, especially we see in this letter, is seeking unity in in the church that is grounded in love. Seeking to display the oneness Jesus died to create. In Ephesians 2, 14 and 16, Paul says, Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And if 1 Corinthians, this letter, has been reminding us and, and, and showing us anything, it's at least been showing us how quickly Satan will work to erect dividing walls of hostility in any direction he can that Jesus died to tear down. Satan loves to be at work in local churches building new walls of hostility to divide us so that the church's witness in the world is impotent. And we are not at a loss of potential dividing lines. We're surrounded by them right now in 2020, aren't we, Grace? Dividing lines of racial hostility. Wherever racism is present and unchecked in the hearts of God's people or allowed to continue and persist among the fellowship of God's church, it's going to display dividing lines that lie about the gospel to the world and cut people off from the very thing that would give them life. But it's not just that. Dividing lines over approaches to destroying the dividing lines of racial hostility can raise up even among brothers and sisters in Christ who all agree that racial hatred is evil. Dividing lines of party politics, dividing lines of how we all respond to the ongoing COVID pandemic, and on and on. These are potential dividing lines that could be erected again among us in the church. I want to ask just a very practical question here as we're closing. Where do you see the greatest potential for dividing lines of hostility to rise in your heart 
toward another brother or sister in Christ. Maybe this week, instead of retweeting another article or uh, sharing another straw man meme or uh, liking another soundbite, maybe a more productive work of the Lord to be abounding in is a humble face-to-face conversation that involves listening charitably and seeking to maintain uh, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's amazing what that can produce. I've seen wonderful examples of that even in recent weeks. I want to encourage us in this work. And Paul does too, and he says, to encourage us, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why does he have to say that? Well, because we need to hear it, right? All these things, these works of the Lord, in different ways, we can be tempted to feel like they're in vain. Do you ever feel like working to kill sin in your life and to grow in godliness feels like it's in vain because you just keep falling and falling and you feel like one step forward, three steps back? Paul says, that labor's not in vain. Do you get discouraged sharing the gospel, telling people about Christ? You you step out in faith and you share and it's rejected or just dismissed or you're laughed at or just nothing happens and that's good for you and it leaves you discouraged and and your courage shrinks back a little bit and we think our labor's in vain. Or we try to pursue unity grounded in love and it can feel hopeless. You just go online again and you go, well, this is not worth it. Just a bunch of shouting and where nobody repents, nobody apologizes, nobody forgives. This can lead us feeling like these labors are vain. But Paul says resurrection hope means our labor's not in vain. And here's why I think it means that. Our resurrection hope means that no effort in any work of the Lord is a waste of time. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that every work of the Lord that you do will always produce the fruit or results that you hoped or prayed for. Jesus' earthly ministry of three years exemplifies that, right? How many people went away from Jesus and thought he was crazy? Couldn't bear with his teachings and he wept over the city of Jerusalem for that. For fruit that didn't, that wasn't born, that he labored so hard that his family had to say, you got to give yourself a break, you're going to kill yourself. But was Jesus' labor in vain? No. Not because it produced all the fruit he expected, but because there is an eternal life that this life has a bearing on, any effort we make in the work of the Lord is not a waste of time. It's for a good reason. It's worth doing. Are you encouraged this morning? Are you thankful this morning? That's been my goal, that we would, this morning in this text, feel thanksgiving welling in our hearts. And so as I close, I want to do it like this. I know that responsive readings are really weird in a live stream because I won't hear any of you. I'll hear 10 of you in this room if you speak up. But here's what I want to do. I just want to remind you these three great reasons that we have to give thanks. And I want you to respond in your living room, even if it's awkward. Thanks be to God, okay? All right. Grace. We will all be changed. They said it here. Uh, Grace, death will be swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. Grace, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Thank you, God, that we have a living hope. That's what you mean when your word says living hope. It has a power to invade our present and change it and lift our spirits. Lord, lift our spirits this morning. 
Give us confident in the promise that our labor is not in vain. Give us strength for the race that you call each one of us to, a willingness and a joy to be part of it. Lord, what an amazing thing that you choose to use us to bring people into eternal glory and joy. God, I pray in these days to come that there would be a harvest of fruit from the faithful labor of your children here at Grace E.B. Free, La Mirada. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.